Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And we're going to pick up today where we left off at the end of podcast number 612, where Robert Anton Wilson was talking about the coming of computerized machines that will be capable of producing various states of consciousness in us without having first ingested any substance. And if you've been listening to uh, some of the recent recordings from our live salon sessions, well, you know that uh, while these machines are not yet here, they are in development, and uh, I may even live to see them myself. Sadly, uh, Bob Wilson is no longer with us to see for himself, and as we are about to hear, back in 1988, well, he thought that these machines then would only be a few years away. So let's join him now and uh, see what basis he had back then to predict the coming of machines that can produce psychedelic experiences. And just to be sure that you put this talk in its proper perspective, you may want to keep in mind the fact that when this talk took place, the World Wide Web, which is what most people think of when they're talking about the Internet, well, the web wouldn't even be rolled out on the net for another four years uh, after this talk was given. And as you know quite well, since then, uh, so much new tech has been rolled out that the world is now significantly different than it was, uh, well, when this talk was given for sure. At least it's uh, different in the way that we communicate with one another on a global basis. And now, here is the one and only Robert Anton Wilson. Uh, these machines are accelerating all the time. Uh, pretty soon, there's a machine called the Mind Mirror, which shows you how much uh, alpha, uh, how much beta, alpha, delta, and theta you've got in each hemisphere, and you've got guides showing various patterns, and you just look at the patterns and try to duplicate them on the screen using that as a feedback device. This one pattern is typical of a Zen master. It looks like an upside-down pair. You can sit there with the mind mirror and gradually approximate to the upside-down pair, and your brain is changing and mutating while you're doing that. Now, you combine that technology with something like the Synchro Energizer, and it's obvious that within three years outside, we are going to have a machine where you uh, sit down with a computer keyboard and you plug in the type of consciousness you want. You just type in how much alpha in the right lobe, how much beta in the left lobe, and so on. You get the exact program of what you want, and your brain goes into that. This can't be more than three or four years away. I've spoken to a lot of the researchers in this field. Some of them think they're going to have it next Tuesday after lunch. Uh, the people in the, the gerontology field uh, think life extension is, is coming in a, in a couple of years. Uh, we are going through a fantastic mutation where we're moving off this planet. We're learning to raise our intelligence by altering our, by uh, programming our brains for higher functioning, and we're expanding our lifespan. And so we've got uh, space migration, intelligence increase, life extension, which gives you Timothy Leary's well-known slogan, smile. But all that is going on while, while we're passing through dozens of other mutations at the same time. In the 1890s, uh, well, a pioneer futurist calculated that New York would be abandoned by 1922 because the horse manure would be up to the third floor by then. Uh, he was projecting one variable forward, the increase in population, but he was leaving out the fact that technology is accelerating. It turns out New Yorkers aren't being destroyed by horse shit, they're being destroyed by automobile fumes, just like, uh, just like us lucky people in Los Angeles. But that, too, will pass. Pretty soon, people will be working at home, and they won't be driving these cars around all the time. Einstein's brain survives. That's at a university in New York, a medical school. Sometime soon, somebody's going to get a cell out of Einstein's brain. It'll probably be done with a federal grant through the National Institute of Mental Health and so on, a funded research project. I prefer to think it'll be some uh, some mad scientist with a hunchbacked assistant creeping in at night. But uh, we're going to get a cell out of Einstein's brain, and then we're going to take the DNA and the RNA, and we're going to have Einstein DNA and RNA and put it in a little pill, you see? And you take the Einstein pill, and you've got Einstein DNA and Einstein RNA, and you start to act more like Einstein and think more like Einstein. Uh, 
Um, you can get brain waves from people who are still alive. You don't need to mass manufacture the pill. Uh, you can get John Lilly's brain waves, uh, map them out, put them in the computer, type out the keyboard, and get those brain waves going through your brain, and you're thinking, feeling, perceiving like John Lilly. Uh, or if you want a really funky thing, you can get Rajanisha's brain waves. If, if you're into bum trips, if you're an adventurer and want to see how much you can stand, you can take a George Bush brain wave and, and live through the last 20 years of CIA machinations and so on. We have, throughout history, we have been inside an iron triangle. Lifespan is limited, very limited. Most mammals uh, uh, die within 30 years. Most human beings have died within 30 years. And it's not just high infant mortality. You look back at the past uh, centuries, you find there was high infant mortality, but there was high mortality between infancy and 10, and high mortality between 10 and 20, and high mortality between 20 and 30, and by then almost everybody was dead. We were extending that all the time the AIDS epidemic has the strange side effect that more money is going into immunological research than ever before in history, and the immunological system is the key to longevity. When the cure for AIDS is found, it will undoubtedly mean that we're all going to live longer, and I don't mean increments of 10 or 20 years. I mean doubling, tripling, maybe quadrupling human lifespan. And so that side of the triangle is becoming more and more elastic, stretching more and more. And the other, the second side of the triangle that limits us is space. The average mammal never travels more than 10 miles from where it's born. The average human being throughout history has never traveled more than 10 miles from where they were born. In Ireland, you can find people who are still living that way. They've not, there are people in Dublin who have never visited other neighborhoods of Dublin. Now, we're getting used to jetting all over the world. Uh, I'm continually meeting people in Amsterdam who I met uh, the year before in Boulder, Colorado, or I run into somebody in New York who tells me about somebody I met uh, the last time I was in London, and uh, and, I'm, and uh, you don't have to be rich to do this. Uh, uh, people, are, people are just traveling more all the time because they stop defining travel as a luxury and defined it as a necessity, so they fit it into their budgets and they do it. More and more people are traveling further and further. Now, uh, most of our communication technology is in outer space now. The rest of our technology will be moving into outer space in the next 10 years, and we'll be moving into outer space after it. Space colonies will be up there in the next 15 years, full of hundreds and thousands of people, and next there'll be millions of people. Jerry O'Neill has already designed a space colony for 4 million people. The whole thing is designed and it can be built with the technology we now have. It doesn't require any breakthroughs into new technology. All it requires is the four million people who really want to do it, putting their energy together and taking off. And so uh, one side of the triangle is, is space. The other side is time. We're getting more and more time. We're getting more and more space. And the third side is the innate limitations on human consciousness and intelligence. Throughout history, we have been like the Norway rats in the behaviorist laboratory. We've been conditioned mechanisms, imprinted and conditioned. We follow mechanical programs that are imprinted in points of imprint vulnerability and other mechanical programs that are conditioned by repetition. And we get conditioned uh, to go around saying, yes, the king must be obeyed, yes, the pope must be obeyed. Or we can get conditioned to go around saying, we have a democracy, now we are free. Well, we're still robots and we're still following the same robot programs. Now, with modern neuroscience advancing so rapidly in so many areas, uh, these brain machines I was talking about and dozens of other new insights that are coming along, new insights and tools all the time, the intelligence increase part of Leary's equation, consciousness has no limits. So if space has no limits, time has no limits, and consciousness has no limits, we're not in the triangle anymore. We are expanding to infinity in all directions. And you've got to keep that thought in mind if you're going to prepare for the 21st century, because the future is coming at you faster all the time. Fortunately, you only have to deal with it one day at a time. But whenever you hear somebody say, be here now, remember, anything that becomes a cliche eventually makes people stupid. And that has become a cliche in the last 20 years. You've got to deal with the future because that is where you are going to be spending the rest of your life. Now 
I will entertain questions, and hopefully some of the questions will entertain me. Uh, who wants to be the goat and go first? And yes. When you do that, speak up a little bit too. Please. Sure. Thank you. Um, I guess I have a question about the types of these stuff that look very interesting. Can you tell me more about uh, the secret society or whatever it is called, the Illuminati, that uh, these types are about? Oh, the Illuminati. Uh, the Illuminati is about the most controversial subject on the planet. And when I'm asked about the Illuminati, I, uh, I, I'm never, I, I always have an inner struggle whether I should tell the truth or engage in a shameless put-on. Uh, the, 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 uh, the Illuminati was founded in Bavaria in 1776 by Adam Weishaupt, a former Jesuit. And it was a secret society within Freemasonry, which is already a secret society. So it was a secret within a secret. It has therefore aroused great curiosity, especially among paranoids. Uh, uh, the technique of the Illuminati has been copied many times. There was an Irish revolutionary group called the Molly Maguires, which uh, some of you may have heard of if you're into labor history or into Irish history. They were a secret society within the ancient order of Hibernians, which was a secret society. So they were a secret society within a secret society, too. It's, it's a very clever technique. In Italy recently, we had uh, Pay Due, or in English, P2, which was a secret society within uh, the Grand Orient Lodge of Egyptian Freemasonry, which is the biggest Freemasonic lodge on the European continent outside of England. In England, the biggest lodge is, of course, the Scotch Rite. Uh, the Paidoué was a secret society within Italian Freemasonry, within the Grand Orient Lodge. And uh, it was run, oddly enough, by three people who were Knights of Malta. The Knights of Malta are a secret society of Catholic uh, lay entities. Note how I avoided human chauvinism and didn't say lay persons. Uh, the Knights of Malta is a secret society of Catholic lay entities devoted to undoing the Protestant Reformation and restoring the Pope to his rightful position as ruler of the whole Western world. As a matter of fact, the whole world, now that they found out there's more than the Western world. And uh, it is my hypothesis that Pei Due was not a Masonic conspiracy, but a Knights of Malta conspiracy, which molded its way uh, virused its way into Italian Freemasonry, so the Freemasons would get, would get the blame for it if the, if the lid ever blew off. Um, there are many links between Pei Due and the Illuminati, which has led some people to speculate that uh, the Illuminati itself was a Catholic conspiracy, that Weishaupt never left the Jesuits and that the Illuminati was a Catholic conspiracy within Masonry. Uh, the world is full of strange loops like that. The top uh, CIA informant in the Soviet embassy in Washington during the 70s was known by the code name Fedora, and he was regarded by the CIA as their best source of information for what's going on in ruling circles in Russia. And the FBI accidentally stumbled on evidence that Fedora was a KGB uh, colonel whose job was infiltrating the CIA and feeding them false information. <laughs> the, the, CIA, the FBI notified the CIA of this by telephone immediately. Uh, that sounds naive, but that, that, at that time the FBI believed that their line to the CIA was untappable. However, within a few minutes after they notified the CIA of Fedora's role as a KGB mole within the CIA, Fedora left the Russian embassy for the airport and flew back to Moscow immediately, which left the CIA with two alternative gloomy hypotheses to consider. One is that their untappable phone line wasn't untappable, and the other is that there's another KGB mole within the CIA high enough up to know exactly what's going on and defend the other moles if one of them is uh, one of them has their cover blown. Um, that did happen in England. Uh, England has had since the 50s a series of uh, about 20 scandals in which top officials turned out to be moles for the Soviets. 
this uh, even extended into MI6, the, uh, which is the British equivalent of the CIA. There have been about six uh, people from uh, MI6 who have been exposed to Soviet moles. And then the head of MI6 died, and a book came out claiming he was a Soviet mole, too. And there's a lot of good evidence to support it, but the best argument for it is how did these six other moles get so high in British intelligence if they weren't protected by a mole at an even higher level? Um, uh, these, these, are, these are fascinating uh, topics to me as a writer of uh, novels of suspense and intrigue, however ugly they are. They're, they make for good plot lines. And that, that's my fascination with the Illuminati, Pei Due, the CIA, and similar clandestine operations. Is that enough of an answer? Do you want more? What did the Illuminati actually do? Well, they, find, they founded Phi Beta Kappa, for instance. Uh, according to... Uh, According to some Federalist writers, Jefferson was an Illuminati agent within the American government, but then there were writers who claimed the Illuminati financed the Russian Revolution. Uh, there are all sorts of theories about the Illuminati. And what, what they actually did was spread radical ideas. Uh, well, how, how much else they did is a matter of uh, debate, yes. Where is Carl Oglesby nowadays, and what is he doing? Uh, he's a professor of history at Boston University. And the last time I saw him was in a discussion at New York University last week where Carl and I gave a talk uh, on conspiracies from Daily Plaza to the present. And we discussed Carl's uh, model, according to which the, there is no, the, the American ruling class is not a class. There are actually two ruling classes in the United States that are trying to annihilate each other, the Yankees which is the New England, New York banking houses, and the Cowboys, which is the Western entrepreneurs who started the aerospace industry, the oil uh, industry, and the computer industry. And uh, Oglesby's model is that these two uh, are behind all the things that we can't understand about modern American politics. It's the result of the warfare between these two. And I've added to that, I've generalized that to a uh, hypothesis about all of history, that all of history consists of wars between declining Eastern powers and rising Western powers, uh, which is caused by the gradual westward migration of ideas and the capital that results from the ideas. And it turned out Carl is as much a fan of my books as I am of his which uh, illustrates Edmund Wilson's theory of the shock of recognition. One genius always recognizes another. Or, or it illustrates that people with the same form of mental illness tend to be attracted to each other. Yes? Uh, Carl, the idea that power and money moving west, uh, could you say now that probably Japan is the next in line, it's been so far west? That it, it certainly looks that way. Everybody in Silicon Gulf that I know spends all their time worrying about what the Japanese are doing. And so it certainly looks like the, uh, there has been this movement all the way around the world, and now it looks like it's shifting from California to Japan, but at the same time, uh, there's a feedback factor. Uh, new knowledge travels back faster eastward than it ever did in previous history. So knowledge is going around the world in two directions at the same time, and meanwhile it's expanding into outer space. So I, I think uh, the, the specific rim culture that uh, William Irwin Thompson has written about, uh, the anthropologist, he talks about this emerging culture, the Pacific Rim, which is made up of Japan, Australia, California, and a few others like British Columbia and Alaska and all the Hawaiian Islands and so on. It seems to be the culture that's shaping the future right now. But the Pacific Rim culture is just the terrestrial part of it. If you take a wider framework, there's an extraterrestrial culture emerging as our technology moves into space, and we're going to move into space with it. Well, my trajectory of the future is the brightest, uh, boldest uh, people are going to settle uh, Lagrange Point 5 in the next 20 to 50 years. And uh, in the next hundred years, uh, the Lagrange area will get so crowded and bureaucratized and uh, conformist and stultified that the brightest and boldest will move out and settle in the asteroid belt. 
and by then we'll have star travel so by the time that gets bureaucratized and centralized they'll move out of the solar system entirely and that leads me to Heinlein's law the intelligence of a species is directly proportional to the distance from the planet where it started out <laughs> I, I imagine our, uh, by the time we get to the other end of the galaxy that part of the human race will be the brightest uh, part and uh, well, I'll just compare New York with California, and you'll see what I mean. Uh, and New York is the uh, New York intellectual discussion is: Can we reconcile Freud with Marx? Uh, they're, they're living back in the 1920s or around 1900. Actually, these are the hot intellectual issues in New York, and things like that. And uh, Nietzsche wrote about uh, the decadent phase of every culture. The decadent phase is when people start writing things like Ecclesiastes, uh, the sun riseth and the sun goeth down and there is nothing new under the sun, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Now that's the way European intellectuals sounded at the end of the last century. That's because Europe was on the decline. Now New York intellectuals sound like that because New York is on the decline. The only place you'll find the Dionysian spirit is as you move westward. It starts in Boulder, Colorado and extends steadily westward to the Hawaiian Islands and Japan. <coughs> yes? Um, <coughs> I say this in New York too. It makes them mad as hell. <coughs> yes? Is because um, I read uh, very, the various newspapers and listen to various uh, television and radio programs, I seem to see a greater casual acceptance of multiple conflicting realities on the part of people, especially in, in this country. Do you see that? Do you see that approaching, say, where the way it is in in uh, many parts of Europe, where we have access to more greater variety of realities than we do often here? That's uh, that's a very interesting question. I see it. A lot, but I don't trust what I see because I see a specially segmented view of the of the American public. Uh, what, what, I, what I see, if I judged America by what I see on my lecture tours, uh, nobody ever would have voted for Ronald Reagan. What I'm referring to specifically is at the same time we've got the, the urine tests and uh, the DEA, or actually the customs officials, seizing research vessels because of marijuana cigarettes found on board. We also have police chase mayors and governors seriously discussing legalizing cocaine. And mm -hmm. these are being reported in the same newspapers with nobody <laughs> saying, look, look, aren't these two different? <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, the uh, that, that is... Uh, um, I regard my most important uh, contribution to uh, literature or knowledge or comedy or whatever I'm engaged in is uh, popularizing the multi-model approach uh, of modern physics, which is uh, don't look for the correct map, look for the map that's most useful here and now. And always remember, it's not the true map for all eternity and be ready to change it. And... Uh, when you stop to think that there's a Picasso statue in front of City Hall in Chicago, it does seem that the world has mutated. Uh, well, what's the, what the hell is that Picasso statue doing in Chicago? Uh, where where the, the, the mayor, uh, when I was living in Chicago, the mayor was a, a gangster named Richard Daly, who was renowned for saying things like, the police are not here to create disorder, the police are here to maintain disorder. Uh, the, the man could not speak an intelligent, coherent sentence of English. Uh, his other famous declarations were, there is no ghetto in Chicago. Chicago, and we're going to move everybody out of the ghetto. Uh, and yet they got this Picasso statue, which is a perfect example of multi-model uh, thinking. All of modern art, uh, Joyce's, Ulysses, uh, Citizen Kane, every field of modern art has this multiple vision. But that Picasso statue, you walk around it and you see a great big Afghan dog. And you stand at another angle and you see a male and female face looking at each other. And you get to another angle and you see a praying mantis. And um, to the extent that people are getting used to the idea that you can see things in a variety of ways, uh, we are getting more sophisticated. But there are still a lot of people out there who can only see things one way. There's, all, there's altogether too many of them still left around. I collect not literature. Uh, it's a hobby with me. Uh, uh, one, one of my favorites that I received in the last month comes from Christians Awake, 
and Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, boy, if they were awake, I'd rather be asleep. Uh, uh, they, I got a beautiful pamphlet from them called The Washington Monument and AIDS. And that title in itself is so beautiful. It, it, takes, it takes a very special mentality to see the connection. the connection. The connection between the Washington Monument and AIDS as well. In the first place, if you look at the Washington Monument from above, what do you see? You see a circle with a dot in the middle. Now, that's the symbol of the Illuminati. It really was. That was the symbol the Illuminati used for themselves. And who does the Washington Monument commemorate? George Washington, a renowned and notorious Freemason. And when was it built? 1833. Why 33? Because there are 33 degrees in Freemasonry. And then they go on and prove the United States from evidence like that. The United States has been ruled by a Freemasonic cabal ever since the beginning. And therefore, Freemasonry are behind gay pride. Therefore, we've got the AIDS epidemic. You see, you never realized George Washington's role in creating AIDS, did you? <laughs> then there's the truth missionaries of positive accord. Uh, I, get, I get literature from them. They, they, uh, they make sense. I think they're right. And not that I believe them, but I think they understand the Bible better than Jerry Falwell or most of these televangelists. According to the truth missionaries of positive accord, Elohim in the first book of the Bible is plural. Well, I've heard that from a lot of Hebrew scholars. Elohim is plural. So there's not one God, there's at least two. And then on the basis of a great deal of analysis of the biblical verses, they show God is corporeal, not spiritual. The whole idea of God as spiritual is totally unbiblical. In the Bible, God walks through the Garden of Eden in the afternoon. Uh, God has a voice, God has eyes and ears, God has a womb, God has breasts to suckle with, and uh, it turns out that, that God is uh, two, Mr. God and Mrs. God. <laughs> and, uh, and Mrs. God has been deliberately suppressed by a, by a male conspiracy throughout the ages, but she's right there when you start analyzing the Hebrew, and she got into the Christian church too, Hagia Sophia in Greek, which gave us the English word Holy Spirit, Hagia Sophia is female. The Trinity is God, Mrs. God, and their little boy Yeshua. <laughs> and I think they're absolutely right. <laughs> but uh, it sounds pretty weird when they start explaining it. Uh, you know, how big is God? Well, they think he's about 18 feet tall, because uh, if Godzilla walked through the Garden of Eden, there wouldn't be a tree left standing. You know what happens when Godzilla walks through Tokyo? You know, God is not quite as big as Godzilla or King Kong. And uh, there are, God is male and female. It says in the Bible, male and female. God, God, God's plural, creates the human race. Male and female created the gods, the human race. And uh, so the gods are male and female. And we are made in the image of Elohim, the gods, male and female. And uh, then they demonstrate how the Immaculate Conception occurred. Uh, God, God, God could not masturbate because that's a sin. So God has sucked him off. And then the sperm was conveyed to Mary. And uh, this makes much more sense than anything I've ever heard from Jerry Falwell. Uh, these may be the only people in the Christian world who understand the Bible. A lot of Kabbalists will whisper things like that to you, but uh, these people have figured it out on their own and are trying to enlighten the rest of the Christian world. I fear their path will be a thorny one. Uh, next question. Yes. Um, when you talk about the uh, people working out of their homes, uh, do you foresee there are going to be some changes in in the type of places people live? Because one of the first things you think about, particularly if people are hooked into all these machines, is that you're getting you have all these new ideas, yet you're getting antsy and you're getting kind of a cabin fever type thing happen. So, is there a way that we're going to be able to? design things, homes and buildings that are going to be... Yes, uh, Buckminster Fuller started designing homes uh, 50 years ago that could be taken apart, put in a can, and moved anywhere. Uh, when you don't have to go to an office every day, you can live anywhere you want. And uh, the idea of buying land uh, is becoming obsolete. Uh, the capitalists themselves realize it. Uh, what's behind all this big condominium movement? It's not just another scam to transfer money from our pockets to theirs. It's they realize land isn't worth shit anymore. Uh, so they're selling it to us. 
finally, uh, because what's really important is information, and that's why they keep building in more and more safeguards on their computers to keep the information from getting out. It's information that's important, not land. And people will be traveling more and more every year. Uh, the first, uh, the first one to fly the Atlantic was Lindbergh, 1928. In 1978, 200 million people flew the Atlantic. I don't know what it is in 88, but it's probably about 4 million by now. These things are all exponential. People are traveling more and more, and people will be carrying their houses with them in uh, big aluminum cans. Put the house together when they arrive where they want to be. Uh, spend a year in Maui and then spend a year in British Columbia and then spend a year in Amsterdam and uh, I like it. <laughs> yes? It requires tremendous resources to sustain life in space. How are you going to support space colonies when the Earth is polluting itself to death? Um, that question has uh, about a dozen assumptions in it, all of which I challenge. Uh, let's see, where do we start on that one? Um, in the first place, we can build whole ecological systems. Uh, there are millions of people who have ecological systems inside their houses. They're known as fish tanks. And uh, you don't need to build an ecological system to keep a dog. But if you want to keep tropical fish, you've got to build an ecological system for them. We've been practicing that for a long time. Uh, we have gotten to the stage where we are building ecological systems for many animals. And uh, there are experiments of this sort being done in, in Australia and Arizona and many other places. A space colony will be designed in such a way that it will be a balanced ecological system. And the designs, there are many alternative designs and they're being improved all the time. The, uh, there's a project in Australia called the Healthy City in which uh, um, people, uh, scientists from all over Australia and some from as far away as Norway are involved in designing a city that will be totally healthy for the people who live in it, that will not only be free of health hazards such as uh, built into current day cities but will have healthy, positively uh, health, uh, health beneficial effects built into their very architecture. Uh, Buckminster Fuller started thinking that way as far back as the 1920s. His houses were intended to be healthy houses, and he was talking about building healthy cities. Uh, the fact that under the present uh, monetary uh, system, things are done in a stupid way doesn't mean that things have to be done in a stupid way. There are more intelligent ways to do things. Most of human history shows that we only do things the intelligent way after we've tried every possible stupid way and found out that none of them work. But we've just about gotten to that point. There aren't that many more stupid things we can do. So we're, we are gradually learning to do things in a more intelligent way. Um, the, uh, the One of the major benefits of uh, space colonization uh, almost certainly will, will be making solar power available 24 hours a day all over the planet. Uh, the people who have their money invested in atoms and oil keep telling us solar power will take another 40 years to develop. That's because they have their investment in atoms and oil and they want to get their money back on their investment. But solar power is practical right now, today. Uh, my friend Carl Hess has an 85% solar-powered house that he built himself in West Virginia. A few years ago, I met a former district attorney of Santa Barbara who has a, uh, a solar-powered house. I think that was 90% solar-powered. Um, there's a solar-powered neighborhood uh, or suburb of Dallas right now. Uh, in places like Ireland and Norway and lots of uh, northern latitudes, uh, solar power is not very practical because of the high uh, number of days per year in which it's raining and overcast and dark and gloomy, and that's why they have the highest suicide rate in the world in those countries. It's depressing to live there. Uh, those places can have solar power too if we uh, have uh, space stations up there collecting solar power 24 hours a day and beaming it down to the earth forever it's needed. And when we've got cheap solar power coming from space, uh, there'll be no incentive to use polluting uh, uh, energy sources such as coal and oil and all those uh, things that we're running out of anyway. 
uh, like I say, we always do the intelligent things when we run out of stupid things to do, and we're going to run out of coal and oil in the near future, so we're going to have to start doing more intelligent things. Yes? Uh, can you talk a little bit about how, how quickly or how rapidly you would see the evolution of the legalization of drugs? Um, that's, a, that's a hard one. Back, uh, if you asked me that 20 years ago, I'd say, oh, in the next five years. And uh, I was obviously wrong, uh, which illustrates the cosmic schmuck principle. Uh, uh, the, cos the cosmic schmuck principle is, uh, if you realize you've been a cosmic schmuck a lot of times in your life, you'll begin to get the glint of a suspicion you might be a cosmic schmuck now, too, and you won't be too sure of yourself. Uh, I find this a very useful principle uh, in keeping me from taking myself too seriously. It's like Gary Jeff's distinction between objectively hopeless idiots and subjectively hopeless idiots. <laughs> the subjectively hopeless idiot knows he's a cosmic schmuck and is trying to do something about it. The objectively hopeless idiot thinks he has the answer to everything and therefore isn't trying to do anything about changing himself. So I'm happy to be a subjectively hopeless idiot. I've arrived at that stage anyway. I know how often I've been wrong. And so making a specific prediction about a thing like that, I don't know. But uh, there are things, uh, in spite of the uh, increasing uh, violence and stupidity of the government's, quote, war on drugs, there are signs of the opposite sort appearing, like more and more conservatives are coming out for legalization. William Buckley, the intellectual giant of the right wing of America, has been in favor of legalization for five or seven years now, and he writes columns about it more and more frequently. And Milton Friedman, the, the economist uh, of the Reagan administration, the Nobel Prize winner in right-wing economics, monetarist theory, and Milton Friedman has come out for legalization. And the arguments have nothing to do with the First Amendment or libertarian theory or anything. It comes down to the very uh, concrete, uh, practical, pragmatic fact that you can't enforce these laws and keeping these laws on the books is only making the mafia richer every year. When my father was young, uh, the mafia was a small gang of Italians in one neighborhood in New York who made their living by extorting money from other Italians who owned little shops like groceries and uh, butcher shops and whatnot, bar rooms. And the Mafia got to be a national and international multi-billion dollar mega corporation on the basis of these laws. The Mafia now has its own hotels, its own gambling casinos, it runs a large part of the restaurant business. You can't get in the restaurant business without buying your linens from the Mafia. They own their own banks, they own shares of banks, they own shares of movie studios. If we keep these laws on the books for another 10 years, another 15 years, we're eventually going to reach the point where the Mafia owns fucking everything. <laughs> and uh, even, 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 even conservatives are beginning to see that. The only way to prevent the total uh, Sicilianization of the United States, the, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the whole system of omerta and, uh, yeah, and like, you know, Miami is getting like Chicago was under alcohol prohibition. The, the drug enforcement agents carry machine guns, the drug runners carry machine guns. You can't walk out on the street. The innocent victims are, are getting killed more than the drug dealers or the drug uh, enforcement officers. And the only way we're going to stop that is by taking the profit motive out of it, by legalizing everything. And then taking all the money they've been spending on trying to enforce these idiotic laws and putting it into rehabilitation programs for people who do have drug problems. And uh, that, that makes so much sense that it's bound to be recognized eventually. But considering that the American people have eaten 1.8 times 10 to the 10th power McDonald's hamburgers and elected Richard Nixon twice and Ronald Reagan twice and George Bush and Quayle more recently, I don't know how long it will take common sense to get across. Yes? Yes, uh, where do you see um, Christianity evolving in the 21st century? Will it uh, continue to play a heavy role in, in political institutions? Um, all I can, all I can uh, give you as an opinion. Uh, 
Christianity has been falling apart for about 500 years. The United States was originally founded to be a non-Christian country. Uh, the Christian religion is conspicuously absent from the Declaration of Independence, which is a deist document that invokes nature's God, a term of the free-thinking deist philosophers of the 18th century. The Constitution doesn't mention the Christian God once and specifically prohibits the establishment of a religion. Um, uh, most of Europe is secular. Uh, in Sweden, uh, it's almost impossible to find a churchgoer, for instance. Um, of course, the whole communist world is officially atheistic, even though people still sneak off to Russian Orthodox churches. Um, I would say in the next hundred years, only the most uh, austere and intellectual forms of Buddhism are likely to survive. I, th I think fundamentalist Christianity, fundamentalist Islam, uh, fundamentalist everything, they're all going to collapse as the information, the information acceleration accelerates further. That's my guess, anyway. Yes? you see a collapse of the monetary system as it is, and if so, what will replace it? I've thought about that for a long time, and uh, I've heard all sorts of interesting proposals about what should replace the present monetary system. A lot of people, you know, uh, the bankers didn't always control money. They didn't always create money. Uh, Lord Cook and in the Institutes of English Law says sovereignty inheres in the right to issue coinage because uh, the king was the only one who could issue coinage under the traditional system. Uh, that broke down in the 18th century and even more in the 19th century because so many governments were in the habit of debasing their coinage that they wouldn't trust one another. And into that vacuum moved the Rothschilds who had paper money that they would back. And uh, gradually the governments found they trusted the bankers more than they trusted one another. And so the bankers acquired the the, um, uh, the franchise on issuing money, which previously belonged to governments. And a lot of people think if we just gave the franchise back to governments, all our problems would be solved. But uh, since it was the government screwing up that turned it over to the bankers, I don't think that's a step forward. There's a lot of uh, proposals that we use computer money and we just make notations in our computers about who owes who what and abolish the banking system entirely. I think that's very likely going to happen eventually. I think in the meanwhile, we're going to go through an evolution. They've been talking in the European Parliament for about 15 years now about creating a European currency so you don't have to keep changing paper every time you cross a border in Europe. European countries are so small compared to the United States, it's until you've lived there, you don't realize how often you cross a border and have to change your money. And uh, I think there will be a European currency, and then I think there will be a United Nations currency, and uh, the whole profit will come out of jiggling currencies against each other, which is how banks manage to become... Uh, so bloody rich and get so much power is the constant jiggling of one currency against another. Now, when I lived in Ireland, my checks would come from uh, New York, from my agent in New York to Ireland, and then I'd cash them in an Irish bank, and uh, since the mail comes late in Ireland, I'd cash them the next day, and I used to think, gee, while I'm sleeping, those bastards in Hong Kong are changing the value of what I'm going to get at the bank tomorrow morning. <laughs> because they're all night long they're negotiating on the values of currencies. Uh, right now we have reached the point where most countries cannot pay the interest on the national debt anymore. Most countries owe the banks more than they can ever pay back. And that's been going on for nearly 10 years and with the increasing uh, publicity in the last five years, what the banks have been doing is loaning money to countries to allow them to pay the national debt, which means that the national debt gets larger and the interest goes on mounting and it's turning more and more into a, a gloomy imitation of the loan shark business that you find in the slums where the interest will eventually devour everything. And there's more and more talk about who's going to default first. Will it be Brazil, Argentina, Mexico? Who's it going to be? Uh, right, and maybe it'll be the United States. We're the number one debtor nation in the world right now. 
thanks to what George Bush called voodoo economics before he had a religious conversion and decided <laughs> he could believe in magic too. And uh, somewhere, somewhere down the line, there's going to be a point at which uh, nations just cannot pay the interest to the bankers, and there's got to be another backing for currency besides our faith and the magic of the banking system. And I imagine it will go by way of the UN currency to eventually to some kind of system where we abolish money entirely and we just keep records on our computers of uh, who owes who what. And of course there'll be no interest on that. Uh, the, the, the computer programmers have no way of, of convincing us that uh, when we make a notation in our computer we got to pay interest to somebody on that. <laughs> So I think interest will disappear, and it's interest, by and large, that eats up uh, uh, the wealth of the world and creates uh, so much poverty in the midst of uh, ever-increasing wealth. So I, I see interest disappearing along with rent in the next hundred years. Yes? Uh, several weeks ago, uh, a couple people from PSYCOP were on Hour 25, and I happened to tape it, and I listened to it before reading the New Inquisition and after it. And uh, with that in mind, would you say a few words about Carl Sagan and perhaps throw in Martin Gardner and uh, James Randi while you're at it? Um, yes, uh, I, got, uh, I got an interesting letter today from a friend in Arizona. Uh, he said he, he started reading Martin Gardner because of reading my polemic against Martin Gardner. And he's decided to canonize Martin Gardner. He's made Martin Gardner a saint in his Church of Universal Agnosticism. And he refers to him as Saint Martin. And what converted him was uh, Gardner's uh, essay on Bell's Theorem, in which Gardner explains what Bell's Theorem means pretty clearly, and then says this has no implications whatsoever for the real world. This only refers to the subatomic world. And he decided that Martin Gardner is a Sufi uh, an enlightened Sufi master who is teaching us by pretending to be a fool. And, uh, and as we see through the, the, uh, this, uh, these logical fallacies he keeps putting out, we are forced to become more enlightened. Well, that's one interpretation of Martin Gardner. Another interpretation is he really does believe the things he writes. Uh, Gardner is on record as saying he thinks Stanford Research Institute should be burned to the ground because of the kind of research they were doing there. Uh, I, I wrote the New Inquisition because I felt there was increasingly in PSYCOP that kind of spirit that they, they want to destroy the research they don't like, they want to drive researchers out of their jobs if they don't like the results of the research. Uh, they they have that uh, attitude which we were talking about a little while ago of the we've got the one correct map and it never has to be revised and I call that fundamentalism and I think the scientific world has entirely lost that uh, except for a few cases like Carl Sagan but uh, there is uh, there is sociologic there is a sociological study of psychop has been done and the majority of members are not scientists the majority of members are lay entities. The single profession most widely represented in PSYCOP is stage magicians who have a hard job making a living these days. Uh, PSYCOP is giving them an additional source of income. Uh, well, that's, that's vulgar Marxism, isn't it, looking into things like that. Um, but uh, there is not really much scientific. Uh, they've never done any scientific research. Uh, they call the Committee for Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, but they never do scientific investigation. What they do is write uh, polemics against people whose ideas they don't like. They did one scientific study on astrology, and the fellow who wrote the study for them has been claiming ever since that they distorted what he wrote and they would not print the letter he wrote trying to correct their distortions. And that argument is still going on. Uh, but that's the only attempt they ever made at doing a scientific report and they bungled it. And uh, But I like PSYCOP because they provide uh, a satirist needs targets. And if PSYCOP did not exist, I would create them. That's sort of the way I feel about Dan Quayle. I, I feel Dan Quayle, PSYCOP, the Ayatollah Khomeini, people like that were put here to inspire me to, to flights of rhetoric and uh, irony and sarcasm that I would not achieve on my own without this inspiration. So I'm very grateful to all of them. 
and I mean that sincerely. Uh, a satirist cannot survive without targets uh, to satirize. Yes. How valid is free energy? What? You know, the free energy movement, the Joseph Newman free energy oh, movement. Oh, Joseph Newman and his, uh, yeah, I don't, uh, don't, don't ask me about that. I don't know what the hell to make of that. Uh, some people make great discoveries, and when they're not recognized, they turn gradually paranoid. Um, like Wilhelm Reich, maybe, uh, possibly. Um, Joseph Newman sounds increasingly paranoid. And yet, on CBS, I saw a car move, which CBS said, as far as they could find out, there was nothing inside. It was running on Joseph Newman's uh, magical uh, machine. Uh, unless CBS goofed up, uh, maybe he did make a real discovery. I don't know. I, 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 I'm even more agnostic about that than I am about most things. I would like to see more tests of Newman's claims. I'd like to see more tests and less rhetoric. I think that goes for all controversial ideas. I'd like to see more tests and less rhetoric about them all. Reich's orgone box, Newman's machine, the Tesla um, antennae that was supposed to bring infinite energy to the Earth, and uh, all these ideas. There should be more investigation and less name-calling. And then we might find out which of these ideas are any good. Yes? Most of our themes tonight have been pretty widespread and global. I ask you to be uh, a little bit more personal. What if the parents of a five-year-old child came to you and showed you a child whose brain was much bigger than a normal kid's and showed other signs of basically conforming with a lot of expectations of the next evolutionary jump for the human species? How would you advise them to raise the kid? And this isn't a hypothetical question. How to raise a super child? I would advise them to consult somebody who knows more about that than I do. <laughs> who knows about that? Just because I'm up here on a platform doesn't mean I have the answer to every question anybody can think of. <clears throat> yes? Could you tell us a little about what you've been working on in the past year, your newest books? And and what you're working on now? I, uh, I've been writing a lot of articles for Gnosis Magazine and for Critique and uh, for Magical Blend. I've been working on a screenplay for Axiom Entertainment. I've been developing a television series which may or may not get off the ground. And I finished the third of my historical novels, which is not called Nature and Nature's God anymore. It's just called Nature's God. I decided I like the shorter title better. And um, I just wrote an article on connection machines for a German magazine. Tomorrow I'm teaching a workshop at uh, the Mandela Bookstore. Then I go back to work on the screenplay. Uh, I have, uh, I'm doing my cosmic conspiracy game in January. And in February, I start traveling across the country on the lecture circuit again. I find it an interesting life. I think talking about it anymore would bore most of the audience, however. Next question. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, what inspired you to write uh, the Aleister Crowley scrapbook? It's not out there for sale. The Alistair Crowley scrapbook. Is that yours? Is that yours? That's Colin Wilson. Oh, no, that's that's that, that's uh, that's cooked Wilson. I'm raw Wilson. You, you got to keep the two of us distinct. <laughs> and it will be Gurdjieff at various stages of evolution. That's the earliest stage of Gurdjieff. There's another one later on, which is Gurdjieff as a mammal. And that's a whole bunch of sheep busy munching away, and one sheep is standing up and saying, wait, wait, listen to me, we don't have to be just sheep. And, uh, and the, as, the, as, the, uh, as the delay factor increases, the cortical delay, as Krzyzewski called it, as the cortical delay increases, you, you're not uh, living in an Aristotelian either-or stimulus-response behaviorist net. You see a phalanx of possibilities, very much like the parallel universe theory in quantum mechanics, and you have more opportunity to choose which realities you want to go into and which you want to stay out of. And that's the whole purpose for work on consciousness. 
uh, Maurice Nicole, who was a physician, a Jungian therapist, and a student of Gurdjieff, said the only uh, reason that consciousness research is so important is because we need to decrease the amount of violence in the world. And it will not decrease until people are more conscious of who they are, where they are, and what's going on around them. So in the most positive view, then, we could take the machines to get to a better level of relating to everyone around and proceed beyond it rather than use it to overstimulate like a drug or... Well, actually, um, there was research with rats where they kept pushing a button on a machine that stimulated the pleasure center. Um, but uh, the machines that I was talking about early, uh, the uh, neuropeptide machines, they, they don't work that way. They have a very definitely limiting factor on them. There is, there hasn't appeared uh, anywhere any tendency of people to overuse the machines. You find out that after a few days, your consciousness is staying at uh, a certain level and you have no desire to go back to the machine. And uh, two weeks later or three weeks later, you suddenly decide, uh, gee, what's the matter with me? Oh, yeah, I'm feeling kind of glum today. So you take another dose of the machine and you move your consciousness around. And, and if you have your brainwave done a couple of times a year, like I, I have been lucky enough to have lately, I keep running into researchers who are very eager to measure my brain. That's a wonderful thing. I keep getting cross-sections of my brain. And, uh, I see how, how I'm learning to go into theta more and more quickly and uh, how to go, how to move uh, from alpha down to delta fairly rapidly and move from the right hemisphere to the left and so on. And uh, it's obvious that uh, these machines will uh, lose their all interest from me in the next couple of years because uh, I'm learning the machines are teaching devices. And after you've learned the lesson, you give the machine away to a friend who could use it. Pet scan your brain a few times. What? Pet scan your brain next. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. These uh, neuropeptide machines you're, we're, I'm hearing about, um, are those accessible to like the regular Joe like me, or are they just yes. researchers? Yes. Uh, Omni magazine carries ads for them. Uh, so does Magical Blend. Uh, Reality Hackers has a lot of ads for them. Buy, buy, uh, go, to a, go to a good large magazine store, buy Omni, Reality Hackers, and uh, Magical Blend. Uh, read the advertisements and decide for yourself which one you want to invest in. I do not recommend any particular machine because I don't want to lose my, I don't want to sound like a salesman for some machine company, so I'm just talking about the general area. I have my own favorite, but I'm not going to tell anybody what it is. Besides, there are better ones coming along all the time. The thing I'm worried about is uh, uh, I ran across them before and some of them didn't measure brain waves at all, they just measured like perspiration or something like that. And I didn't know that there was an uh, inexpensive machine that could m measure your Theta waves say that you know that you could actually buy, but you're saying there are those out now. Uh, no, a machine to measure your brain waves is still rather expensive, but machines that will change your brain waves are getting cheaper and cheaper. There are machines that run in the two hundred to four hundred dollar range that very definitely move you from beta to alpha, or down to theta, or down to delta. And uh, I'll mention the names of some of the machines. There's the Pulse Star, the New Star, the Isis, the MC Squared, the Tranquilite, the uh, Endomax, the NeuroPep, the Synchro Energizer, and uh, a few dozen others. And the advertisers all will tell you that their machine is the latest and the best. So you got to use your own uh, intelligence to pick out, uh, to find out more about the field. You can try reading Michael Hutchison's book, Megabrain. That'll give you a lot of useful uh, information and leads. And you can try subscribing to my newsletter, Trajectories, in which I review these machines uh, fairly regularly. And you can talk, you can talk uh, to uh, other people who've investigated the field. Yes. Yeah, uh, I want to ask you about your play. Uh, were you the production that was done in Dublin? Were you pleased with it? And why hasn't been done? Hasn't it been done here? 
Uh, I was pleased with uh, the Dublin production. Uh, uh, the director of the Dublin production is trying to get a production on in New York right now. There's also a group in Portland, Maine, who are, uh, want to do it. And I'm, I'm very eager to see that production come off, even though Portland, Maine is not the center of the theatrical universe, <laughs> but it's where Reich actually stood trial. And I think it would be a wonderful thing to have the play about Reich done in the city where he stood trial and was condemned. And there's also uh, two groups in L.A. who are trying to get the money together to put it on. I don't know which one of them will get there first. So I'm expecting an American production in the, in the near future. Maybe more, probably more than one American production. Yes? In Ireland, did they do the play in Gaelic? <laughs> Well, I only uh, saw plays in Gaelic when I was in Ireland. Um, only 5% of the people in Ireland uh, speak Gaelic. But the theaters, they, they all do it in Gaelic. No, most of the plays in Dublin are done in uh, Irish well, English. The only ones I saw were in Gaelic. Oh. Well, yeah, there are, they are, there are theatrical groups who do plays in Gaelic, but most of the theaters in Ireland do plays in Irish English which I happen to consider the most beautiful language ever invented in human history. Vastly superior to English, English, Australian English, and American English. Uh, Gaelic, they tell me, is a beautiful language, but I don't know, I don't know enough about it to pass judgment. Irish English, to me, is the most beautiful language ever created. And the greatest works of literature are all written in Irish English. John, uh, from Jonathan Swift to James Joyce to Flann O'Brien. That's another lecture. I, I have another lecture. Uh, the Land Where Bulls Are Pregnant, where I explain all about Irish literature. But that's an entirely different lecture. And this has gone on pretty long tonight already. I think I will take uh, two more questions and then uh, take the rest of the evening off. Okay. What is the play to start a riot about? Excuse me? The play to start a riot. What is that about? Oh, that was a play about uh, Ezra Pound who made propaganda broadcasts over Rome Radio and was condemned for treason. And the play uh, is on a stage in which actors keep coming in talking about a riot that's going on outside the theater. This, I wrote this in the 60s, where a bunch of peace demonstrators and, uh, were attacked by the police. And uh, then a race riot breaks out in a nearby neighborhood, and the, the race riot, the, poli the police riot, the peace riot, and all of this all gets tangled up with the pound play. I was called the Caged Panther, and several people were interested in a production, but a production never happened. And then I lost the script. I guess I got disgusted. Uh, maybe I'll rewrite it someday. I lost the script of the rake play, too, and I rewrote that. Maybe I'll rewrite the pound play someday. One more question. Uh, there you are. Do you feel that uh, uh, psychedelics have served their purpose as a catalyst in the uh, the human species, or do you think that, that today there is still a purpose for these substances? Uh, culturally, they've served their purpose. Uh, culturally, they've done some good and some damage, and they send the signal around the world that human consciousness can be radically changed quickly. Uh, scientifically, they have not exhausted. Uh, they've, they, they were just barely tapping into it. I am not in favor of more widespread use of psychedelics. I am very much in favor of uh, re-opening uh, scientific investigation under controlled uh, conditions uh, with uh, skilled therapists uh, using Leary's general principles and Graf general principles about how to program a good trip. Um, I, I think I think that the, what was accomplished in the research of the 60s was so astounding in terms of the previous history of psychology that I think reopening that area to scientific research would be a tremendous benefit. Uh, but I am not uh, I'm not particularly thrilled by the drug culture. I'm not particularly thrilled by all the bad uh, stuff that gets sold under the under the wrong name and all the profits that are being made out of it and all that crap. Okay, that's it. Thank you all for your patience. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. 
As I was listening with you just now, it dawned on me that this recording must have been made at a private gathering of some sort, and I guess probably the type of gathering that I call a salon. And for what it's worth, the informality of the conversation is much like what we have in the live salons every Monday night. And while sometimes I have a guest join us for the Monday night salon, on most nights we have more of a free-for-all conversation. For example, tonight we'll be discussing some of the ramifications that Ben Gortzel put forth in his TEDx talk about artificial general intelligence and artificial superintelligence. I know that uh, some of our fellow slaughters are actually working in this field, and I also know that many of us are already aware of what's coming our way in the form of AI. In fact, much of it is already here, yet most people are paying no attention to what AI is going to bring. Of course, a lot of it's going to be spectacularly good. However, uh, there are a few detours that could lead to a nightmare scenario once ASI comes into play. So, even if you aren't geeky and don't care about future tech, I think it'll be worth your while to begin paying attention to the rapidly expanding field of artificial intelligence. And I guess that I should also say something about why these live salons are only available to my supporters on Patreon. Well, the answer to that is simple. <laughs> Without their support, these podcasts would have come to an end uh, over a year ago. You see, my only source of income is my social security check and the monthly donation that 425 of my favorite fellow saloners contribute via Patreon each month. Now, a couple of years ago, I tried to hold these live salons for anyone who wanted to attend. And so they were open to the public, but they also were a disaster <laughs> because trolls soon filled the room and took it over. So now, uh, every Monday morning, I reserve a new Zoom conference room and then I send an email invite to all of my Patreon supporters with the link for that night's conference. And the other thing I guess I should point out is that to get an invite to the live salon, it only takes the pledge of a dollar a month. And while that may not seem like a lot, well, my plan is to keep these live salons going for another 10 years. I'll be 87 years old by then, and, well, it seems like maybe that would be a good time for me to retire. <laughs> However, uh, if you figure $1 a month for 10 years, well, that's a total of $120 over the life of these live salons. And, uh, well, I consider that to be a significant donation to help keep a roof over my head so that I can keep these podcasts coming your way. And for those donations and for all of the other support that I've received over the past 15 years of podcasting from here in the salon, well, I thank all of you from the bottom of my heart. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>